conversation on potential future risks that are not showing any signs of actually coming to manifest also blinds us to real long-term crises. There's one that I can think of called climate change from the Washington Post. We are on pace to heat the United States by 10 degrees Fahrenheit over the next century. 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that'll be really uncomfortable. And this is uh, written by Brad Plumer. The U.S. government has just released an initial draft of its third national climate assessment, a massive document looking at how a hotter planet will affect the U.S. It should also be noted, by the way, that what they're also talking about there is um, not that it's going to get... Uh, It's going to be 10 degrees warmer all the time. It's going to get warmer, literally hotter in the summertime and colder during the winter. Climate change really means, you know, swinging back and forth between greater extremes over short periods of time, which can lead to all kinds of other problems, not just temperature related ones. Yes. And this is this is based on a projection of a world in which we continue to burn fossil fuels at our current rate with no effort to tackle emissions. Yeah, And thankfully, we live in a world where President Obama has already said at the beginning of his second term that if Congress doesn't act to address climate change, he will direct the EPA to do so by instituting limits on carbon emissions for the country. Yeah, Um, But that's not sufficient to inject the amount of public revenue and shared collective will and resources that are going to be necessary to transform our entire economy to create a world where we are not making our planet unfucking habitable It's amazing that people can be so callous about it and, and just not care. As the, as the Washington Post article points out, of course, that's over the longer term. What about in our lifetimes? Um, this governmental report points out that average U.S. temperatures have already risen one and a half degrees since ni- since 1895 and are expected to rise another two to four degrees in most areas within the next few decades. There's an online drought map um, that I believe the government provides, but it's like a real-time interactive website of drought conditions in America. And it's not a pretty thing to look at. And that's with the amount of climate change that we've undergone already yeah and not at the tail end of a developing world building industrial economies on the most carbon intensive resources that's not at the tail end of america exploiting all of its um deep under the ground uh shale fuel using fracking aside from the fact that it causes earthquakes (laughs) yeah among other things and and now like there's sitting before President Obama and the various executive offices is the decision of whether to approve the Keystone Pipeline or not. And that's another thing amid, you know, gun control or infrastructure or any of those real problems that need addressing and long-term problems that need preparation for. There are decisions at hand now in the short term that are going to inform those long-term trends. So, I mean, I, I guess like the only thing I can say is that people need to pay attention because the politics of climate change and the politics of economics and what we decide are economic priorities are going to inform all of our other discussions. Oh, yeah. You know, and there's going to be an election in 2014. And the reason we are so deep in the shit now, part of the reason we're so deep in the shit now is that a lot of liberals and quote-unquote progressives stayed home in 2010, either because they were pissed with Obama or pissed with Democrats. But that enabled a corporate 
funded fake grassroots astroturf political movement to come into power. And the Tea Party is fucking us six ways from Sunday. And the next chance that we will have to act and to make a decision will be in 2014. But a lot of fuckery is afoot in the meantime, that needs to be paid attention to because it's going to set the conditions under which we're going to be making that decision in 2014. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, that decision on in 2010 to put the Tea Party in power that America made is something that we're going to have to live with for another 10 years because of the uh, damage. I mean, like electing a, a movement like that on a, in a census year on a, in a census year is was so a disaster. fucking sh- one of the most short-sighted things that people who pride themselves on being smart and advanced and civilized could ever do. Oh yeah. So short-sighted, so against everyone's best interest, but especially against the best interest of the kind of progressive cause, the notion that government can be a force for active good in society. Oh, yeah. Even if that means making some parts of government smaller. Yeah, and the fact that nobody cared about that is a decision that we're going to have to live with uh, for the next 10 years, and that's a shame. And as a result of some of that redistricting, we're going to have to live with Republicans who are essentially politically invincible. And that's really the biggest problem we have now is because 90% of the Republicans who are in power are politically invincible. And well, not invincible, but very well insulated. And the thing is that finding a Democrat in any one of those races who could get them out of power is going to be an uphill climb for the next seven years. No matter. See, I'm I'm slightly more optimistic than you, if only because Republicans are doing such a fantastic job shooting themselves in the foot that I believe the zeal of the Tea Party set to primary any Republican that steps out of line is not an incentive that's going to go away. And now the th- the real threat to the Republican incumbency, you're right that the seats are safely drawn to support a generic Republican candidate. But what we saw last November was Republicans in what were safe districts who primaried the still right wing, but comparatively moderate Republicans who had been in there before, say in Indiana, which of course got redistricted. Um, They're doing such a great job at eliminating viable candidates that I retain hope that they will continue dwindling their numbers. And I mean, in terms of the sheer demographics of this country, America is outgrowing the Republican Party. I but agree. that is a longer term trend than any of us can take any comfort in. I cannot emphasize enough the necessity of voting in 2014. It's not even so much that my preferred set of policy choices is at stake. I feel like the ability to vote in elections And the ability to have representative governance is still at stake. And I guess to some extent it always is. I I, I think there is a degree of risk always inherent in any collective enterprise. But I feel like, again, that kind of unity of purpose where either party, whichever party there is, 
at least fundamentally believes on some level that government can do some good for everyone, that is really at risk. And that's actively under attack by one of the two major political parties. So it's especially important, even if you don't agree with what happens to be the majority party that's being thwarted in its operating goals right now. I'm not a Democrat. I don't want to be part of the Democratic Party. But at this point, I'm determined to defeat Republicans whenever, wherever and why ever they are. Somebody uh, recently wrote, and I wish I could remember who the writer of the column was, but they were writing about how, oh, it could have been Rachel Maddow also. The Democratic Party is pretty much both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party of like the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Yes. Because the modern Republican Party has no room for, you know, sane policymaking anymore. The only ones who are, are still around are the ones who are so crazy right wing that, you know, 30 years ago they would, wouldn't have been allowed to see at the table, much less taken seriously, much less, you know, been winning, you know, House and Senate seats. But now the Democrats kind of have to play both sides of that argument. So a lot of this legislation that they're coming up with lately, you know, including the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, you know, that is also a result of that. It starts out like everything they start with is the centrist position on things. They don't take they don't stake out progressive yes. ideas. They always they tack to the middle because they naturally they organically generate centrist legislation that yes. everyone on both sides of the party can agree on. Which, by the way, isn't terrible. Except that the opposite the other party is so determined to destroy it that it never gets done so a lot of what the democrats come up with are not crazy lefty liberal ideas even the gun control legislation they're considering right now is very modest centrist very watered down it's only about you know background checks and about magazine size these are all things that even wayne lapierre agreed with 10 years ago exactly it's and the, republicans in in the mainstream of the party agreed with 10 or 15 years ago. yeah and now is an anathema because it's barack obama's idea and everything he owns they have to destroy precisely that's, that's their only directive precisely that's that ramification of defining yourself as the mirror opposite of what the black guy is doing yeah is that not only are you denying the majority party in America the results of the election that it won, denying it a healthy opposition, and thwarting even the middle of the road, or I would say in many cases right of center policies that it promotes. And you're you're so like dead on in your assessment of the Democratic Party because it is such a big tent that it has that debate over synthesizing a an idea on one end of a pole and its antithesis on the other side of the pole and coming to some kind of middle of the road position but when the other party in power makes it its mission to thwart you no matter what you propose then you have no incentive as the majority party in power to do anything to actually change the status quo. And so it, it not only limits the scope of the success rate for previous proposals the, the party has made and that the president has made, it limits their imaginations in right. concocting better or more progressive or more, or, you know, more appealing policies 
this country has severely deficient physical infrastructure. That's roads, that's bridges, that's aqueducts, that's water infrastructure in cities beneath houses, that's electricity in our power grid. And to his credit, Obama and the Democrats did a lot through the stimulus and um, over, over the period of the first term to invest in infrastructure. But America is still something like $5 trillion underfunded not not in terms of future infrastructure that could be built, but in terms of present infrastructure that is so weak and critically exposed that it should be taken down immediately and replaced. Yes, and it um, should be done so by American citizens with full financing who will be hired to do them as permanent long-term jobs that will not only make them an awful lot of money, everyone who is involved, and all the contractors and all the private companies that are going to actually do the hiring. It's not the federal government is going to walk around handing out paychecks. It's going to be private firms that get hired for crazy amounts of money. Exactly. And then develop the stuff, and everyone everyone will make a very serious living on it. And it's it's hard work. It's not a handout. It's the government saying like, "Hey, we have you know five hundred billion dollars here, and we're going to give each of you X percent of it." And you're going to go out and you're going to make this bridge better, this road um, better. You're going to uh, reinstall traffic lights at these places where they're starting to break. This, there are power lines here that somebody – I heard somebody say the other day on, on uh, some news show that the uh, uh, American electrical grid infrastructure received a D. Oh, yeah. No, and, that was – that's from the same report – that was from the same report that said that it was $5 trillion underfunded. Yeah. Was that the, most of – something like 80 percent or something of most – uh, rated structures in America's mm-hmm. infrastructure yeah. are a D or below. Yeah, and uh, that is pretty much the worst thing um, ever. And someone, <laughs> it's someone has to do something about that. That it's is unacceptable. It's a clear and present danger to almost every American community. Yeah, and not only that, but it's perverse. It is absolutely perverse that over fifteen percent of Americans have given up trying to find work when we have a massive and expanding hole in the productive capacity of our economy and the engine of economic growth. That anyone calling themselves a capitalist would ignore that and would in fact do everything in their power to worsen the problem and to hasten the bleeding is just perverse it's it's so it's so sickening and uh, it's it's for all the wrong reasons and for absolutely all the wrong reasons i'm glad that you and i are saying this out loud seth because i don't think most people are i really don't i like i like the main the the quote-unquote mainstream media just refuses to accept or acknowledge it like to what you were saying earlier you have reporters in the mainstream media who will go out of their way to frame every story as a two-sided story they will go yes, they, as they, they will ignore democrats the say truth. yeah republicans counter you decide yeah. And they consider that journalism as though jumping halfway across the Grand Canyon wouldn't land you in a million pieces at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I think that the greatest coup, the greatest political coup of the 20th century was when Lee Atwater convinced the world that the media had a liberal bias. Because as soon as he was able to do that, as soon as the Lee Atwaters and the Roger Ailes and the Carl Roves of the world and Bernie Goldberg, you know, idiots like that, were able to convince the world that the media, the media was biased toward liberal. towards liberals, they were able to make everything in the debate 
a partisan issue. And now, see, you're getting into the foundational actions of the the modern conservative movement. And that doesn't just go back to Lee Atwater, who also, as you know, concocted the Southern strategy that cut the former Confederacy off of the train tracks that the rest of the country was on. And it's never gotten back on. No. Um, but he didn't care was- because the, the permanent campaign but that was a two-track campaign there was the southern strategy that got nixon re-elected there was also the powell memo the document written by justice lewis powell of the supreme court that pretty much set the mission for movement conservatism and continues through to this day and it addressed a strategy to paint the media as ideologically oriented toward liberalism to cast knowledge and ivy league institutions as effete and effeminate to cast democrats as a party as weak on national security to infiltrate the culture and the popular discourse the powell memo drove people who later in the Reagan revolution took over and deregulated the FCC that enabled AM radio to become a bastion owned wholly by right-wing voices. Yeah, The Powell memo was in the 60s. We're at the tail end of over 50 years now of a conservative movement that strategically was thinking further ahead, so much further ahead than the liberal groups that were undergoing their own struggles and transforming the country at the time. The liberals who were getting women fundamentally to assert their equal humanity on on the national stage, the liberal groups in the 70s that were getting gay folks to come out of the closet were the, the ones over- pa- passing the clean air and the clean water acts. Right, we we are we have inherited a world where in those areas we are further ahead than ever before. But we've also inherited a country that took in poisonous ideas, really poisonous ideas about what government can do, what government should be allowed and encouraged to do, and really poisonous ideas about the value and the worth of money in our society. And again, because people who came before you and me made so much progress in all those other areas, I feel like there is so much progress to make simply because there's still such a gap in understanding and in information about these wonky things like economics and countercyclical government spending and and that kind of thing but at least those information gaps can be can be brought together in an America that's connected by a global internet the means are there now I mean, I I remain hopeful in many ways because, again, like we saw the results in 2012, even despite uh, 20 or more states trying to restrict people's voting rights, we saw a backlash against that. And my hope is that more and more of us respond and react. The same people who say that cutting government spending is our only priority are the people who are saying that some kinds of rape are legitimate and that abortion is 95% of what Planned Parenthood does. It's not like these are separate groups anymore. So at least we have the luxury of having like one specific group that has coalesced around wrongness. (laughs) (laughs) And at least we have the technology to disseminate the moments and the instances where those people reveal their hypocrisy and reveal their true beliefs. 
And I'm not sure that any other generation of Americans had that pervasive a technology. Or as savvy at using it. it. Like, it's all a double-edged sword, you know, because the internet allows crazy people to find each other as well in ways that they couldn't before. Oh, and they sure do. Oh, boy, and they sure do. I mean, we've seen a rise, an unprecedented rise in the number of hate groups in America. And, and Red State. <laughs> right, and... And Breitbart, and the Drudge Report, and places where crazy people all convene to echo ideas off of each other and even even though none of them are claimed in any factual yeah, regard. A great it, recent example of that was the story with Bob Woodward. Oh God. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you. I had totally forgotten about him. The the Bob Woodward story happens and you know, going into the background of it is not necessary to look it up if you don't know what went down. But the the, the, the short version is he's clearly angry at the White House, because he blames the Obama administration for the sequester almost in its entirety, and pretty much just on the basis that it was his idea. Again, which is true. To remind but, everyone, and, well, but the sequester was the result of the Republicans holding the debt ceiling hostage. Yes. And after that deal, after the Budget Control Act deal, John Boehner said he got 98% of what he wanted. Right. So. Yeah, and uh, and it could have been like that again, mm-hmm. except that all the details aside, Bob Woodward decided to use this this event as some sort of proof that Obama's White House was simply unwilling to deal and was part of the problem, except that his reporting didn't uh, mention a lot of things at all that were important to mention. Ezra Klein yeah. wrote a really great article about that where he was just like, um, actually, and you mentioned it earlier that like, um, actually, uh, Obama's points were all there he was he was it wasn't like a secret that he had, right. was going to give right. up all these what concessions bob Wood, what bob woodward was saying was he was accusing the white house of moving quote-unquote moving the goalposts that like grand bargain is another one of those washington jargon terms moving the goalposts implying that obama changed the parameters of the negotiate of some kind of negotiations that were actively ongoing so as to be negotiating in bad faith with republicans but even if that was happening the goalposts that were moving we're moving in the Republicans' direction. He right. was if offering that, things if like that Medicare. that was happening, yeah. it was going in the Republicans' direction. But in this specific case, Obama, it, what Woodward was saying was that Obama had not been demanding increases in revenue when this whole time, all that Obama has been proposing is a quote-unquote balanced package of spending cuts and revenue increases. Yes. And that, in fact, it was John Boehner who was negotiating in poor of faith um, and who had, quote unquote, moved the goalposts by now saying no more revenue ever. And Bob Woodward was specifically factually wrong about this. Yeah. However. Because this is the thing. Bob Woodward, for those who are familiar with his journalism style, he is not a policy wonk. He has never been a policy wonk. What he is a, an expert on is political relationships and the analysis of political relationships. And accessing elite opinion. That is in part how he was able to make Watergate happen. And that's right, in part he, how... With, with Bernstein broke the Watergate story. Yes. And he was in the... In the, um, the story, the, the literature that he wrote had to do with Nixon and the relationship with his staff and his staff's right. relationship with the Democrats and with who, who do you run against for president? I'm blanking on his name right now, George. 
McGovern. George McGovern. Thank you. I almost said George Wallace. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a candidacy. <laughs> yeah. So his reporting focused on the personalities of it. And again, when he did the, when Bob Woodward did this coverage of the sequester, he decided to make himself and this exchange with Gene Sperling the center of the story in which he allegedly threatened him, even though he clearly did not. He clearly did not. In fact, the White House it released was, the email exchange upon which Woodward based his claim that he was threatened by the White House. Yes. And it clearly showed in multiple ways that neither of them viewed the other as having threatened the other in any way or like harboring any ill will or resentment. Not to mention the fact that the email um, had Gene Sperling apologizing not once but twice in it. <laughs> For exactly what Bob Woodward accused him yes. of doing, um, so it's it's sort of it's sort of this random. It was like this random exchange that happened for no reason, and but again was so illuminating as to the core of what Woodward sees as his job as a journalist. Right, but there was there was an interesting uh, there was a, a guy on the panel of of uh, Bill Maher's show this weekend who made an interesting point. If you bait Republicans with this sort of thing, and 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 the the second half of that story was by the way that Wood so Woodward publishes this ridiculous thing, and Politico the runs person with it. the Politico runs with it first. The rest of the mainstream media, quote unquote, dismisses it as idiotic. Even the Washington Post, mm-hmm. for whom Bob Woodward works, dismissed <laughs> it as idiotic. But, <laughs> but um, the right wing blogosphere did not. The people who picked up and ran with the story were the Eric Erickson's and the Matt Drudges and, and the, the Breitbart's of the world, who immediately ran in all directions, you know, echoing echo chamber of this. And Steve Deucey yes. went on like a little uh, Fox miniature. And Friends. He went on a little miniature rant about it. I mean, like, Woodward literally went on Hannity's show yeah. the other night. And here, and this is why, and this is a, such a pinnacle of cynical journalism, <laughs> which is that he w- he published this story. A lot of people think. Because he wanted to make the Republican echo machine look stupid. Really? And distract them from actual politics on the sequester. What if it was a ruse? It is easier for me to believe that that's possible than believe that Bob Woodward would become so suddenly and unimaginably dumb to create uh, this fictional fight with the White House he was smart enough to understand didn't really exist. It depends on what level of this is personal gullibility on Woodward's part. Like, part of it just has to be that this man has staked his career on, as you put it perfectly, like, like access to and relationships with Washington insiders and the opinions of the elite. And by their nature for the last 15 to 20 years and going on 30 or 40 years with the grander conservative experiment, um, the elite are fundamentally out of touch with reality. And so it's little surprise then that a veteran reporter whose entire livelihood derives from interacting with and making relationships with people who are out of touch with reality, that he would be- go out of touch with reality himself. Sure, he would a, lose touch. He's a beltway creature, exactly. just like the rest of them are. Exactly. He's, he's just an institutionalized Washington insider. And, and, and if once you've been around that sort of thing for long enough, you do lose your perspective on what real is and what actually affects people and why that matters, which is gets back to the point about why the sequester happened. Mm-hmm. The reason why... 
there were all these strange occurrences around such an arbitrarily silly event is because the event was not the problem, it was a symptom. The problem is that everyone in Washington knows that the political climate right now prohibits anything from happening. So the only stories that there are to be had or any policy that's going to be made is, has to be made under the gun. Right. Or not happen at all. And that's where process stories are coming from. That's why the political news cycle right now is nothing but process stories. It's about like what John Boehner said today or what Mitch McConnell said today or what Ashley Judd thinks about this for some reason. <laughs> you know, it's it's all about these like ridiculous process stories. And then it's not actually about substance because you have a political culture where nothing is allowed to happen. And when that happens, political reporters get bored. And this becomes the center of the thing. So it's not even just that they get bored; it's just that that is what there is to cover. That's what there is to cover because of but the they obstruction create, everywhere else. But it's so. But, but they the pull extra- Woodward. They pull a, They pull a yes. Woodward, and they go off the rails and say crazy things because that makes the story more interesting and gives them more space to write ink about it. And that that's all that matters to them. They will create things if there's nothing there. In fact, their editors will even tell them to do it. That that's all. That's all part of it. It all sort of works together to make this keep happening and there's no right. way to stop the cycle outside of maybe like you know telling everyone just to you know shut the fuck up and get their act together and do their job well but that's the problem is that it also part of this system is the belief that inflicting pain on a large number of american citizens who are not rich and who are not elected to government is an effective gun to get Congress to act rationally and to do its job. But finally, President Obama understands that it doesn't work that way. The incentives of the Republican Party make that, by its nature, not only unsuccessful, but now, again, perverse, because we're going to be inflicting pain most quickly on those who can least afford any more pain inflicted upon them and who have taking away the safety nets of the people who had very little safety net at the beginning of the recession, but who need it the very most now because the recovery is only helping the rich. And like that is the that is the poison like that that belief in that kind of tribally inherited American belief that certain groups of people, namely people who already have money, deserve more money, and that people who already have no money deserve to have support taken away from them because somehow it teaches them to be better is a poison in the system. And it's not, it's a, unfortunately, it's still a bipartisan poison, but at least, at least the Democratic Party to the degree that it's trying to, is trying to avert some of that and trying not to actively inflict more pain. This is part of the reason why we shouldn't teach Atlas Shrugged in schools. But I, there I are, read there the are places, for it and it was amazing. There, there are people, right, but the, the, the people for uh, for whom that, that sort of book really becomes political gospel really take away the wrong message from it, which is Ayn Rand's whole concept in that book was that the people who are able to make money are the ones who are able to really affect industry and change in a way that lesser people are not, and therefore they deserve, um, you know, you know, lesser people try to do things like steal. Like, of course, the, the plot of Atlas Shrugged, if you don't know, it's about this guy who gets his formula for uh, something called Reardon Steel taken away from him by these guys who buy out his company and then... He gets whisked away because these, like, sycophantic, you know, underlings, terrible, communist-ish, socialist-ish 
people who make comments like, oh, well, we need to make sure that everyone gets a piece of this and, you know, spread the wealth around, quote unquote, kind of anti-communist, anti-socialist, you know, code wording. And goes on this big rant at the end about how um, the people who are inventing things that, you know, the people, the industrialists. The, the productive. Class. Right. Are, are better than everyone else because they're making everyone else's lives possible for them. But when in actuality, it's more like a two-way street. And it never addresses the other side of the, that issue, which is that those people inventing all these things, you know, who disappear into their own like little fantasy world? Going Galt, as it going were, Galt, as it's yeah. called in the book. Yeah, it's it's um, it's not realistic. It's not how the world actually works. If you're a billionaire and you never have to leave your house or experience anything in the real world, it'd be very easy to believe the things that you read in that book because you think that everyone is going to be after your money all the time and after your fame and want pieces of your of your fame and your fortune all the time. And increasingly, the people who are billionaires struck it big when they were younger. They are egotistical sociopaths. And it, right. the, the specific point in this book um, and in all of Ayn Rand's philosophy, unfortunately, it intersects so well with the egotism and short-sightedness of the super wealthy in our society. And now the, the problem of income inequality in America has grown to such a degree that it's not even the wealthy that are representing like the, the truly problematic class of rich people who are literally gaming the laws and rules and systems in our government to work only for their own interests. It's the super wealthy and it's almost exclusively among the super wealthy that you see people like Sheldon Adelson and people like Paul Ryan or whatever explain that their heroes are Ayn Rand. Their hero, that Ayn Rand is their personal inspiration and yeah. the philosophy around which they organize their entire personal and political lives. Yeah, and you should be wary of anybody who does so because the philosophy of objectivism is I'm going to get mine... And if you get yours, good for you, but I'll do everything I can to prevent it because I want more for myself. Right, exactly. And, exactly. And that it's, might be an okay philosophy for some people. I think it is a dangerous thing to align yourself with because you are setting yourself to be setting yourself up to be screwed. Well, and not only that, but you're setting everyone else up to be fucked because it reduces the world down to a zero-sum game where anyone else's success comes at your detriment. Yeah, and that is absurd. The, the, uh, the reason why we had such a great economy during the Clinton years is because there was a sane taxation system. We had saner, saner. I still think we should roll back the Reagan tax cuts. Saner, right? I, yeah, I, I kind of agree. There is no party in in the United States, no political party, Democrat, socialist, even the socialists, who think that the rich should be paying ninety percent of their income like they were under Eisenhower. Right. There should we don't no liberal thinks that you should be punished for being wealthy. However, we do think that people who are wealthy, who are lucky enough to utilize the American system and to be supported by American consumers into that category, which is how one achieves wealth. You don't just become a millionaire. You provide Unless a product you, you provide a product that is lucky enough to gain that kind of attention right. and was engineered well enough so that the people are willing to throw their collective weight behind it collectively. Mark Zuckerberg didn't become a billionaire overnight because 
Mark Zuckerberg is a genius. No, it's Mark Zuckerberg he made a thing that became popular with other people. Yes, and that became um, that became uh, uh, how he was able to grow his wealth. But that came from all of these people who were basically rewarding him financially for doing really well. Then, and in those cases, free market economics really do work, and they are successful. But it doesn't work one way, because it would be like the government. Just rich people collecting all this money and not spending it again to hire new workers or to expand is just as bad as the government cutting spending and going into and enacting austerity measures because that that money has to keep moving. Exactly, money doesn't do any good. Liquidity exactly. doesn't do any good in the economy unless it is constantly moving throughout each sector, throughout each realm. It has to. It's it's a it's a pool. It's got to keep moving around. So when people are sitting on top of giant piles of money like the banks are now and hedge fund investors are right now and and um, and corporate America and, and corporate America yeah. and some, something like uh, you know three or four trillion dollars yeah. is just being sat on by yep. the top 50 corporations in the United States and banks corporate profits have gone because, up 150% during it, Obama's presidency and that yeah I mean, uh, Barack, but sitting on it Barack Obama here's another dirty secret Barack Obama is the best thing that ever happened to the stock market in the last Truly. 30 years he's the best thing better than Reagan better than anyone else it's, it's never been doing better the problem is the only people who are still participating in it are the ones that were so wealthy that the crash didn't hurt them in 2007. Or profited them. Right. Or profited either, on either the Either through the insurance payouts or through the TARP assistance. And again, yeah. this goes back to what I'm talking about as like the, the poison in the system because that poison inflects how we believe other people should be treated when they fuck up. And as a result of the poison in our system, we believe it's more okay to help rich people when they fuck up and lose everything, and that it's somehow not okay to help poor people when they lose everything, or to help middle-class people when they gather so much debt buying basic necessities or getting medical care that they go bankrupt. This belief that Different groups of people deserve better things or are more moral or will make better decisions or need to be educated is a poison in the system. And I mean, whether it's Ayn Rand that you're getting that information from or corporate America that you're getting that information from, either way, it's poisonous bullshit. And uh, it really takes away, I think, you know, and this is going to sound cheesy and I apologize, but I think it's true. I think that the American model of civil society, that model which we hold so dear. No, and like, let me underline that a million times, because I actually do really fucking hold it dear and sincerely want it not only to continue, but to be vastly improved and to fulfill its actual promise to all the people to whom it's promised. Right. Like, that is why we are discussing such arcane bullshit. Right. That, That thought and philosophy, which is shared... In different ways by different people around the country, liberals, conservatives, uh, urban dwellers, rural dwellers alike, even if they express it differently, the, the core, um, at the very core, we all are better off when there is prosperity for more people, which is why during the Clinton years, the, uh, the, the times were considered and felt like they were so good because a good taxation policy and a good spending policy, when the wealthy are paying a little bit more, you know, 39, 40, 41% of an income that is already astronomical, 
when they're paying that much money to the system and they are helping to accelerate government services for people who who need that assistance. And also to accelerate the flow of money from private coffers into the system, into the entire economic system. The private economic system. That system that was that was so strong in the pre in in the uh, uh, the pre Bush uh, W era was so good because because uh, there was a sense that um, that those expenditures were helping the prosperity of more people. The, those public services were getting put back in the economy. People were spending that money, and the, the money was really moving around and, better. And that encouraged the private sector to use its reserves to spend more money to hire people to do more work because they anticipated, rightly, that there would be customers for the products they made. So even it's the a rich, virtuous feedback loop. Even the rich and benefit from that. Precisely. The, the rich um, don't benefit from austerity because it makes them want to save their money. Precisely. You want rich people to spend that money as fast as possible. And you do that by making the economy competitive for them. That's why high taxes and, and reasonable spending is good. And that's why those economies tend to last longer and produce more and grow faster. Because now, that money is moving faster. It's the, it's the speed at which the money is moving, not the amount of money that's moving. Now, here's the question then. In light of that, countries in the rest of the world um, and also like uh, organizations like the International Monetary Fund are starting to realize how counterproductive austerity is because it literally sucks demand and productive capacity out of the economy. I think there's got to be some point at which Wall Street would uh, collectively would corral the Republican Party collectively, slap it upside the head and say, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to ruin the country. Why haven't they done that? Like, again, it points at the poison in the system that the people who are at the top of it feel as though when one of the two major parties and one of the two major groups of operation within the political system is threatening the entire world economic system, not to mention the nation's economic system, any self-interested group of people would have taken action by now to inject some sense into them or alternatively to fund people to knock them out of office but that's not happening like and that's it's only happening to knock the moderate sane people out of office right tea parties and they're doing a great job with that right I, I i don't know if there's any any point of Republican lunacy past which the big money funders would actually step in and stop it. Do you? Like, do you no, think- because the worse it gets, the better it is for them. They feel like. Right, that's true. And, and the more it riles their base. Again, it's all about yeah. proving themselves right. So every time the Republican Party stops government from doing good, they have stopped government from doing good. And mm-hmm. that's what they want to prove to exist. So they, they manufacture that reality themselves. Right. So the money people, that's what they want to see. They don't want to they don't care really about how much money gets cut from the budget or not. They don't really care. They just want to put on a really big show to show people that it doesn't work. There was a, Ezra Klein pointed out this great exchange um, recently between. Um, oh, God, it was between um, Mike Murphy, the Republican strategist. Oh, yeah, he was he was tweeting Mike Murphy that? about it. It was just it was so thoroughly absurd. And watching it go down... Yeah, I read that article too. Like, it, This goes back to the impossibility of the word yes from today's yeah. Republicans in any kind of budget negotiation with the president. I mean, there's an asymmetry 
of information and there's also an asymmetry of good faith effort to actually agree on things and produce results. Why would you? Why, Why would you? Yeah, there's there's no incentive. In fact, there's incentive not to cooperate, not only because it riles up your base, but because it then also facilitates continuations of all these status quo policies that are on the books now that favor banks that don't actually end too big to fail. And I mean, it's that's that's another kind of unsung thing from the first term of the Obama administration is the Dodd-Frank legislation. And... Or the or just the reinstatement of Glass Steagall, which is what they really should which be was doing. totally off the table. Like no one anywhere considered it, even though there would even have been Republican votes for that. The actually fiscally no, conservative no, no. ideas, yeah. like such as the idea in Glass Steagall that you should not gamble with the money that people have deposited with you, sane ideas like that are left entirely off the table. That used to be the Republican idea. Now the Republican idea is, well, we can't deny investment banks the freedom of doing whatever they want. So this is freedom. This is like part of their – when they say freedom, they mean stuff like that. Like a guy – Well, when they say freedom, they mean rich people making money. They mean, they mean a guy at Merrill Lynch being like, uh, he should have the freedom to do whatever he wants with, with his – uh, with deposits in his bank because they're his. And then also and the then, freedom to receive taxpayer money when he fucks it all up. And it, like exactly to your point the other day, I think it was Jamie Dimon, the CEO JP Morgan, of J.P. Morgan, um, he said that, oh, well, actually, uh, we do really well in downturns. We do well with the depressed economy. Yeah. You know, because, again, they have that they bet against implicit them. guarantee. All I have to do is they bet against bet themselves. They even bet against the success of the economy. They did that during the downturn And they bet, time, and they bet against their it. own success. Right. And then when they when they do go down, they actually make money in the short on sale every markets. every side of it. Yeah. On every side of their shitty deals. Yeah. This is, how, this is how those people are able to survive. Because they create financial products that are um, designed to make money in targeted situations and are unregulated and unwatched. So they can set up entire market fluctuations that go across platforms and across um, economic sectors, and they will will find ways to, to benefit from that, even if it's at um, the expense of people's jobs or lives. 401ks or mutual funds or anything like that. They or their will, literal lives. Yeah. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got private prisons oh, yeah. in America handling our immigrants and impoverished poor people who are arrested on drug offenses. There are some there are some things that the government does better than private industry. Yeah. There are things, there are services that this country, this world requires that should not be profit motivated. By necessity, it changes your moral orientation and it changes even uh, obviously like your your the range of options you believe you have in order to make money and the incentives that are at play. Yeah. And that's before you even get into like questions of, you know, corporate personhood, you know, this, this notion that somehow you can, that many, many people can be one person under a law, um, but never have any of the responsibilities or obligations that a, a human citizen has in America. Like the, there are so many perverse arrangements that we've had that in a previous era in America where we had common purpose and where the ultra wealthy did 
by law, um, invest a fair portion of their wealth into the system, um, there was a, like those virtuous feedback loops could be created in corporate America. We did grow, we did have the largest economic expansion of any country ever after World War II. You know, and we did grow a sustainable middle class because the people who profited from all the infrastructure that the government created and from the economic systems and regulations the government put in place were then forced by the government and by the people who elected the government to put some of that money back into the system to ensure that it continued to innovate and grow. And governing by fucking manufactured bullshit crisis cuts into every single organ of that system but in stupid ways that make it impossible for the government to continue innovating the first things that the sequester is cutting into are medical research and scientific research and that's all of the seed money for the next generation there are people who used to be the heads of the national institutes of health now saying that this is going to kill off a generation of future scientists just from the sequester yeah. Um, and it's it all goes back to this notion of believing that we can force people to change their in, all of the incentives that they have working for them and against them in this system just by threatening some third party. And I'm glad we're starting to move on from it, but it's about fucking time. Because now it's it's it is putting the entire stability of the system at risk in a context where there are already future things that are really going to threaten not only the system, but the entire planet on which it exists. It's a shame that we can't all come together and realize that this is unhealthy and change course because the interests now at this point are in, in, that are involved are too entrenched and they can't make logical, responsible decisions anymore on either side. It's really a shame. Well, but I mean, the the only remaining levers of action, well, I mean, there's one lever of action in the form of literally congregating in the streets, and I don't think things have broken down or probably are likely to break down to that point, because I'm not certain that the sequester is going to cause another recession. I think unemployment is likely to remain high at best, but regardless, it's doing damage now. It's going to compound that damage more and more and more as time goes on. And there is no good reason for any of it. And barring direct action, the one route we have is overwhelming force at the ballot box. And again, like even amid a massive campaign of voter suppression through the law, um, despite that overwhelming force at the ballot box worked last November. So... I still think it has promise. Um, and I mean, I don't know all these numbers offhand, but there are going to be a lot of Republicans up for re-election and or primarying. So anyone out there listening to the By That I Mean podcast in red states, please, whether you're progressive or not, please register as a Republican and as primary season approaches and write in some crazy tea party wackadoos and make sure that they get put up. Make sure that the Republican Party continues on its trend of honestly and earnestly putting forth utter nincompoops who are anti-science, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-all of that. Because they will lose. 
and not only that, but they they will continue the destabilization and the um, forced irrelevancy of what Republicans have to say. And I feel like that is a national priority. I would completely agree with that. It's been a marvelous time having you come to my studio studio, Chris Godwin. Uh, it has been a really remarkable time as well. There was one last thing I wanted to get your reaction on before we sign off. Though, oh, yeah. And that is Dennis Rodman. Oh, lordy. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, uh, last week, uh, for reasons that defy explanation or... Um, really cross into the realm of utter utter uh, madness, frankly. Dennis Rodman, of all people, went to North Korea at the request... <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard sentence to say with a straight face. Dennis Rodman went to North Korea <laughs> at the request of uh, newly installed leader Kim Jong-un, son of, of course, the late Kim Jong-il, the former um, uh, premier... And blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. And he, um, they, they hung out, and uh, <laughs> apparently they from basketball. the from the press reports, it looks like they watched a lot of basketball and had a good time. There are actually photos of the two of them in the stands laughing <laughs> with each other. And this this enters a realm of absurdity that can only be described with the word "wow." Not only because it happened. Um, but because it demonstrates a lot of things that are wrong with modern society, uh, just in this and the fact that it happened, let's start with the fact that Dennis Rodman went to North Korea <laughs> and was allowed to go to the what is arguably the most dangerous communist country in the world. He was allowed to just casually show up, specifically to hang out with the tin pot dictator. Of said country. <laughs> yes, this was this was permitted to happen. Now, um, traveling to um, uh, countries the State Department has poor relationships with requires a lot of red tape and clearance uh, there and back. So um, uh, Dennis uh, would have had to um, put up with an awful lot of pain in order just to make this trip possible or legal. Um, considering that we have a lot of rules with North Korea about travel there, and the fact that they also have a habit of kidnapping Americans when they do travel there. Funny habit. Uh, it, is a, it is an odd and funny habit, <laughs> and something that would make me feel really uncomfortable about going to North Korea, but, you know, whatever. You're no Dennis um, Rodman, sir. No, no, <laughs> no, sir. I, 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 could, I could never be that uh, uh, insane. The he He shows up. And they, they have a great time. They, they talk, I guess, a lot about basketball. And then he comes back. And today, today's Sunday, today's Sunday the 3rd or 2nd, 3rd, well, I don't even know what today's date is. The, um, it is, is the Sunday, 3rd, yes, Sunday the 3rd of March. He comes back and he um, has a conversation about this with, of all people, George Stephanopoulos. <clears throat> as you do. As one would, of course. You know, <laughs> When I come back from North Korea, I always hit up George Stephanopoulos. That's my first go-to always. <laughs> and, I, and he goes hey, on. Hey, Secretary, get G. Steph on the phone. And, right, exactly. And then suddenly you have, you have on television that happened today something remarkable, which was Dennis Rodman, of all people, <laughs> defending the premier of North Korea, and saying that he and Barack Obama should uh, get in touch with each other and hang out. Now, it is worth noting <laughs> that Kim Jong-un, the premier of North Korea, I, I cannot uh, reiterate that enough times, 
invited, the only American he has invited to be in his presence for that length of time is Dennis Rodman. It was not the time that Bill Richardson and Eric Schmidt went to nope. North Korea to visit. Nope. They weren't even mentioned in the press release about this as being having been the, the, the highest-ranking dignitaries in the United States to actually go because Kim Jong-un barely spent any time with them at all. It was mostly humanitarian mission, quote-unquote, whatever that meant. But the, the the time that Dennis Rodman spent there was actually party time. They partied together. He yeah. partied with Kim Jong-un, a 28-year-old dictator. Now, this, what this also demonstrates is that uh, North Korea probably hasn't made it out of the 1980s yet or is perhaps just now entering the 1990s maybe at which point just they'll realize it. like maybe it's just reaching I have a feeling Seth that Kim Jong-un thinks that Dennis Rodman is still a relevant part of American popular culture <laughs> and I think he thinks that because he thinks it's 1989 like when he gets to the Dennis Rodman period where he was wearing wedding dresses and shit like what is Kim Jong-un's reaction gonna be I think I think that will be an interesting thing when that happens but it was also interesting that this this guy who was you know everyone agrees is completely off his rocker and not worth um, listening to who how how many weeks ago did North Korea conduct a successful nuclear test yes <laughs> It is worth noting that this is a twenty-eight-year-old, a twenty-eight-year-old who has his finger on uh, at least one nuclear active nuclear warhead pointing at the United States, and I think that's something that we should all just agree is a little bit terrifying. But Dennis Rodman is the one who gets to go and party with him for reasons that defy any sane or rational explanation. Dum 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 dum. So, when you've got a nuclear showdown, dum 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 dum. You call Dennis Rodman. Dum 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 dum. How was there not an action movie in the 1990s where Dennis Rodman has to go to North Korea to defuse a, a nuclear showdown? It was a missed opportunity, Seth. Steven Seagal and Dennis Rodman. Perfect. It should have happened. It could have happened. <sighs> time machines. Yeah. We have to invent time machines. To make these things happen, I know. It's, a, it's tragic, really. But um, I just I wanted to, to bring that up because I think that we have entered a period of American political history that is going to be remarked, I think, in the years to come for its flair for the Brechtian depths of absurdity that it has managed to achieve. Oh, yeah. It is. It has actually achieved um, existential distancing from anything resembling rational reality and is, is doing so with pride. And I think that is and in, and a remarkable thing. And sadism. Yes, and, and a refusal to acknowledge that. Again, part of that juxtaposition with him with Kim Jong-un inviting Dennis Rodman is the fact that his country is completely in shambles. Like, North Korea is full of starving people. Mm -hmm. There is no developed economy. There is only pretty much hardship and pain and sorrow among the people who are under him. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, hopeless despair and poverty and hunger. And well, but I, I also think it... Um, this also intersects with our media discussion because I, I also heard today that his trip, that Dennis Rodman's trip was actually the doing of Vice TV. Um, and I wow. I don't know if you've seen Vice TV, but they have been producing some of the most fucking compelling, fascinating documentary product I've seen from any media outlet ever. I, I don't know why this is becoming a plug for Vice TV, but but seriously, like they have been producing specifically for the web really, really fascinating documentaries. Like they, they found this garbage island floating in the oh, middle yeah. of the Pacific gyre that, that is just like the size of Texas or something. Yeah. 
that is kind of the collected waste of all of humanity. They go into cults. They go into strange, like, drug stuff in other nations. Like, they, they, they do political stuff, too. The software developer McAfee, when he went crazy on meth and escaped to the Central American jungles... <laughs> And America was like trying to extradite him. They, Vice TV went down and made a documentary with him. They apparently they're making a documentary about North Korea, and for some reason, Found got Dennis to Rodman to. to get there. Maybe that was maybe Dennis Rodman was someone that Kim Jong Un actually mentioned. Like maybe he was there, like Vice TV's entree into getting access to Kim Jong Un. But I mean, either way, I cannot fucking wait to watch that. But it's also interesting because it is, if it is indeed true that Vice is funding this, like it is, that is the internet stepping in to uncover the reality of the world, but through completely absurd means. Um, but again, they're able to do it in a way that no traditional media outlet in America could could ever even imagine doing it, much less uh, brave the risk of doing it, much less spend the money to send someone there who could get kidnapped, any right. of that. Yeah. yeah, and I guess for that reason, kind of remarkable that, that that's the sort of thing that this takes, that, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe, that's, maybe it makes more sense than it looks. Because, I mean, like, you look at, you hear a story like, Dennis Rodman goes to meet with Kim Jong Un. You think like, "Wow, there's no more hope for humanity." And and you're sort of, but maybe there is a deeper meaning to all this. Maybe there's a deeper meaning to why guys like Dennis Rodman have access to Kim Jong Un when the President of the United States or the Secretary of State does not. Maybe there's something to the fact that Bob Woodward is using his position of influence to enact these quixotic, you know, inexplicable, inexplicable, and like I said, you know, Brechtian quests against uh, meaningless nothingness. Maybe it's because maybe there's something to the fact that the Republican Party cannot come together and um, actually uh, form a coalition that can govern a country effectively, and maybe that that means that the United States is on course for political correction, the likes of which we haven't seen in two or three generations. And maybe that's maybe what the real secret, maybe that's why we're going through all these news stories reacting with bewilderment, because maybe this is what a truly uh, cataclysmic change in American society and really human history feels like. And I I absolutely agree, and I also think it's what it requires. It's, yeah. it's necessary of us it's incumbent on us to feel bewildered and outraged and to react not by giving up not by deciding that nothing can be done in tuning out like the previous generation did but to redouble our efforts and engaging the world as it is and at participating in the systems that we have available to us to participate in and also to conceive of new systems and new technologies and new avenues to connect with reality and Absolutely. With, with other people because yes the poison that unrefined ego can inject into the system is painful oh yeah but it is only in finding solidarity and finding connection and community with other people that we can realize that we outnumber the egotistical shits and that we can actually overwhelm them yeah we shall overcome Someday. <laughs> Until That's that it. day, this has been a tremendous episode of the By That I Mean podcast. 
I'm Seth Pearson. I'm Chris Godwin. And I'm so happy that you were able to make time to come yell with me. (laughs) It's been my pleasure, Seth. Thank you for having me. By that I mean podcast, if you like it, can be liked at facebook.com slash by that I mean. You can submit your cookie recipes to me at my website, themfp.org. You can tweet me at MFP Seth. Um, do you have you have a Twitter, don't you? I actually do not. Um, you do not. I do not. No, <laughs> I haven't become uh, Twitter. Ugh. I will. I will someday, but not uh, not yet. I'm afraid. You cannot tweet Chris Godwin. Yet. <laughs> Some, somewhere, I think it's like it's like C Godwin eighty four or something or something like that. I don't know. The by that I mean podcast is a production of the MFP Studio in Los Angeles, California. Again, it's it's just been a marvelous time, and I would love to do this with you in the future, sir. Anytime, Seth. I'd love to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Excelsior. Excelsior. That was awesome.